Hello, and welcome to Season 2 of the Untitled Art Podcast. I'm Season 1's host, Amanda Schmidt. We'll be kicking off Season 2 with three new episodes featuring guest hosts Carrie Doran, Amy Beecher, and Art Legacy Planning, exploring themes such as new gallery models in the 21st century, ASMR and sound art, as well as planning for an artist legacy, among other topics. As you heard in Episode 1 of our podcast, Collaboration is at the core of Untitled Art, and I couldn't be more excited to share these new episodes with you. Welcome to the Untitled Art Podcast. I'm your guest host, Carrie Doran. On today's episode, we'll be talking about the gallery model, which we hear and read is in crisis. This is in part because it hasn't really been updated since the 19th century. Harrison C. White and Cynthia A. White's Canvases and Careers, a sociological, statistical, and art historical study details the shift from the French academic system to what they term as the dealer critic system, which we're still basically working with today. The artist was professionalized and their career was built by a dealer. Solo shows became the focus, and while group shows were not as favored, they helped to build a brand for the artist and dealers and critics often worked in tandem to further the agenda of critical reception to create more value. Considering the massive social, cultural, technological, and economic shifts we've seen since then, it's no wonder this model doesn't work anymore. The global contemporary art market boomed to such a degree that it's unsustainable except for those at the very top. Business models in other sectors have changed dramatically, as have the lives of people who might have otherwise been collectors or wanted to support the arts philanthropically, or artists who are drowning in debt from overpriced MFAs, have underpaid, unreliable freelance work and paychecks that never come, and essentially zero protections or benefits, even from employers. There's this anomaly in the art world where it sees itself as so ahead of the curve with the liberal politics it supposedly promotes, but really it's the slowest to change. This is an extremely broad overview, and so many conversations could and should be generated from these issues. Throughout the episode, we'll hear from Margaret Kerrigan, the Deputy Art Market Editor at The Art Newspaper, Patton Hindle, Senior Director of Arts at Kickstarter, Margaret Clinton, one of the owners of the gallery Koenig and Clinton in Brooklyn, Alyssa Davis, the founder and director of Alyssa Davis Gallery in Manhattan, and Violetta Mancisha, the founder and director of Uve in Buenos Aires. I spoke with Margaret Kerrigan over the phone while she was reporting from London. Her voice helps to set the stage for the financial landscape of the global contemporary art market and the problems this is presenting for the outdated gallery model. We're having a really difficult time on a global scale, far outstripping just the small and insular world of art, really envisioning what the hell's happening with the middle class. That's where the 19th century really found its foothold was in leveraging the middle class and their wealth. Middle class collecting is, is not even a thing anymore. Or it's been cast in this other light by essentially the major power players in the art market that middle class collecting is something that's like grown up on Instagram or, you know, digital spheres now that they're saying doesn't have so much legitimacy. The 19th century model, whereas it's like gold standard, it's obviously not. But what it was built around was like actual objects to sell. 
And that is increasingly not the case, like our, as all these other ways of existing in the world these days. The fact that we haven't updated our sales platforms to accommodate for something that isn't, you know, a painting or a sculpture is one of the big stumbling blocks. The stratification of the gallery system, we just see so many major blue chip galleries like Agosian and Hausnerworth and everything. You know, they hoover up all of these artists because essentially they just have a platform that they're able to sell art through that is successful. Where it's more like these same blue chip galleries that have this outsized market share, they are also the same ones that are essentially trying to co-op these more democratized, for lack of a better term, I know it's kind of a hackneyed phrase, but democratized art sales platforms that are online, like through Instagram, through online sales. For the last decade, since the introduction of the internet, people have been trying to figure out how to make that work for the art industry. And all of these galleries have been like, oh, but that lacks like connoisseurship, you know, throwing around these industry terms to basically give them the time and the bandwidth to develop their own online platforms for selling art now. And then they're just integrating that into their business model. I don't want to like peg it all on them, but when these larger galleries knew that could co-opt the industry in that way, they took that opportunity. So we're seeing like these other platforms that may have been available 10 years ago to a lot of artists, but like maybe we could have changed the narrative around, but like they got siphoned into the quote unquote establishment gallery model as we know it. What are some positive ways that we can like reframe the conversation or even work with what we have as a start? That's a really excellent question, but one that I'm literally faced with every day. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. Right about this stuff. Um, and it's really difficult to envision a, a good solution for it because so much of just the media industry in general, not specific to art, is based around crisis mongering because those are the stories that get clicks. When I'm like looking for stories to cover, I'm really looking for, for stories of people that like this sounds so cliche and in fact like I'm really embarrassed for the words to come out of my mouth. People that are actually just doing interesting good work, that are at least trying new things. Like it doesn't have to work. It doesn't have to be a foolproof solution. You don't have to have all the answers. If you're just out there supporting artists and doing something with it, like, cool, let's go talk about that. That's a real problem, you know, especially when it comes to reporting on the art market. Everybody wants the solution. Everybody wants data. Everybody wants to quantify what's happening in the art market now because we do want to talk about it. It's, like, it's part of like the professionalization of the industry that if we're not somehow putting these finance terms around it, that it's not real. But it's like, no, no, no. Art is not as quantifiable as any other good that's being sold. This is like a very anecdotal answer, I guess. It's more like what we need to be focusing on when we're talking about artistic production is like who's just producing shit. I don't want to talk about the machine behind it necessarily as much, although it's very important to identify that. But like I want to talk more about just the people that are get up, make this like a daily part of their life, not just the creation of art, but the people that are actually like going out and like trying to meet artists and get, get their work in front of people and things like that. Like it is a business, but it doesn't run quite on business rails per se. It's, it's a very like fluid industry. And so that might be kind of the most optimistic I get. <laughs> <laughs> and it sounds really cheesy and it just sounds really simple. And it's not necessarily meant to be that because what we are witnessing within the last decade is a sincere shift in how we do business in the art world. And we don't know where that's leading yet. 
So there's really no reason to just keep, you know, looking down our nose at all these different things or pretending like everything's falling apart or pretending like we have all the answers to fix it. Like we're somewhere in the gray area right now. We should just explore all the all those shady corners. Maggie and I spoke after I had recorded my other interviews. So it was a fortuitous alignment of our sensibilities when she unpromptedly said that in her reporting, she looks for people who are out there doing the work, trying to affect change. Even if their models or methods are not perfect, they're trying to do things differently. Who is breaking the mold and how are they doing it? The final three segments will be with some gallerists I see who are challenging the status quo and running their spaces. This doesn't even scratch the surface of people who are not using a brick and mortar, for instance, or those who are developing relationships and partnerships outside of the art world. Patton is a good bridge to that conversation, though, so I want to start by hearing from her. Patton comes from a background of working in galleries. Most recently, she was one of the co-founders of Yours, Mine, and Ours in Chinatown, which closed in December 2018. This was a month after the second edition of How to Run a Commercial Art Gallery, which she co-authored with Edward Winkleman, was published. The irony was not lost on her. She wrote an Artnet article reflecting on this, and I appreciated her candor speaking about the realities of running a small commercial space. Given this and her role at Kickstarter, I wanted to hear more about her perspective on alternative models. Admittedly, my thinking about Kickstarter has been critical. The projects that often get fully funded are the ones with the budgets for high production videos or a network of people that can be called upon who have the capital to donate. But with the lack of government funding and less patronage for the arts in general, Patton is admirably collaborating with artists and museums to find new ways to raise money. Another critical point she addresses is that this form of support allows patronage at a small, affordable scale, as the price of art may be too high for most, or as less people are buying objects, donations still enable them to contribute to the success of projects. First of all, I think the biggest thing that the art world needs is everybody needs to be more transparent financially. It's also a mistake on artists' part, too, for assuming that the gallery just has money when it it simply doesn't. That's the gallery's fault for not communicating to an artist about what their financial picture is. When we were behind in paying our artists, we always told them because I felt that distrust would be built if we weren't upfront with them, and that would only harm our reputation and also sour a relationship with an artist that we really cared about. But money is hard for people to talk about. It's taboo still in America for some reason. Systemically speaking, if we don't have a government that supports the arts and we don't have it from the ground up, we're kind of all operating strictly in this capitalist system that, and capitalism is what it is. I'm not saying I'm not capitalist, but I think we're operating within a framework that doesn't put value on greater social goods, which is what art and culture often falls into. What would it look like if all of the people who were members of NADA like came together to form a union? I don't know if you want to add anything to that point or just like other systemic things that you've been thinking about uh, in relation to the gallery model. I mean, I can say from helping open Dodge Gallery in 2010 on the Lower East Side to then opening Yours, Mine, and Ours in 2016 in Chinatown on the Lower East Side, the community was a lot tighter, meaning that people were much more open and supportive of each other than they had been previously. So if I needed to email another gallery and ask for a collector's email address, I would get it, and that wasn't an issue. No one was concerned about competitiveness because I think as the landscape started to diminish, people became more supportive of each other because if we all go away, then that's really problematic overall. As you mentioned before, no gallery at that scale is really making a significant amount of money, to be completely frank. There's 
very few that are, and you're doing this because you believe in the work that you're doing, you care about the artists that you're showing. Yes, you need to make a living, and you may have to piece your life together in multiple ways to do that, or you're a single owner, which, you know, we weren't at yours, mine, and ours, which made it harder for everybody to make a living off of the business. But in terms of this idea of banding together, we had thought at yours, mine, and ours, but simply didn't have the bandwidth to do it. What if we were able to form a sort of union to be able to offer health insurance to our peers and be the administrators of that and make maybe some small minimal fee off of that just to help cover our own labor and costs? But I do see that as something that, like, not as a perfect organization that could offer that as a supportive community group. If no one can be as big as, you know, Hauser & Worth that now has God knows how many spaces, including that one in Mallorca that they're opening, uh, if we can't be that large, which none of us are ever going to be able to be, what are the things that we can do to support each other, that band together, that allow us basically just a better way of living and also decreases your own personal expenses because if you have— 200 people going in on an insurance plan, it's sure as hell a lot cheaper than three people being on an insurance plan for a small business. I think what we're watching happen is that the very big, it's it's reflective of everything in the market, capitalism and market in general, that they're watching the very rich, the very powerful get only more powerful and amass more and more artists from other, even mid-level programs now, mid-sized galleries. So you're seeing this shift towards the top, and then it's sort of lingering on the bottom. And I know, like, for example, hasn't David Swerner spoken about how he believes in giving these a percentage back to the gallery if he takes an artist from a younger program or reducing booth fees? Mm. The people that do have the money, even the small percentage, the ethos around collecting has mm. changed. Whereas like a previous generation of collectors may have been doing it because they were investing in culture or maybe there was like a certain aspect to it that was image-based in sure. terms of like, you know, I have this thing in my home. And then there's like the financial aspect to it. Of course, the younger generation of collectors or would-be collectors just have like a different set of values as well that like the art world isn't really thinking about. Or if they are thinking about it, like nobody really knows how to mm -hmm. address it. Like people want to own less things. That's just like a, a yeah. trend. Yeah. So like what do you do when you're in the business of selling objects? So that's like maybe where the crowdfunding example is a good one too. Also, people are interested in experiences as listening, not to talk about another podcast on a podcast. The Knight Foundation has a podcast that they just released in like the last month. And the third episode came out yesterday or today. And I was listening to it on my walk to work. And it started with the thing that's going to make us all in the art world go, oh. But it started talking about the Museum of Ice Cream and then went into Meow Wolf into these sort of for-profit institutions and why they're so successful, and then flipped it into talking about new media artists hmm. and how people are turning to new media artists to expect them to create the same sort of like installation, environmental experience that people feel like they can interact with in a way that they can if they're looking at a painting on a wall, and how we should consider just the values of why would a venture capitalist give money to Meow Wolf to have a museum? What is it that they're offering that the traditional institution isn't? And think about that in terms of when we're reimagining what an institution might look like or what a market looks like. If that's where the funding is, is that the way that we want it to go? 
Yeah, instead of criticizing the Museum of Ice Cream, I think it's like a huge opportunity to be like exactly what you're saying. What are they doing well? Mm -hmm. Instead of like being judgmental for not fitting into our preconception of like how we should be interacting with something in a space. Totally. Yeah. And again, they exist that way because the government doesn't offer enough funding. <laughs> yeah, this is like it all, all cycles back to one place. Going back to this, I know. Margaret Clinton is one of the owners of Koenig and Clinton in Brooklyn. She partnered with Leo Koenig in 2012, after which they opened a space on 19th Street in Chelsea in 2013, then moved to Bushwick in 2017, where she's been leading the programming. The move was in part due to prohibitive rent costs in Chelsea, but was also a response to the changing dynamics of New York's art scene. It's enabled her to keep costs down, so that she can continue to show critical, intellectually engaged art practices and build relationships with local businesses and new visitors who may not have otherwise seen shows in Chelsea. Koenig and Clinton as a gallery have followed for years because of their museum-quality exhibitions and curatorial rigor. Their diverse roster of artists, working across media, is international in scope. For all of these reasons, I wanted to talk to Maggie to ask her how she's been able to sustain this level throughout the gallery's history while reinventing, showing work from the most current emerging artists to design exhibitions. Also, she's been working in galleries for nearly two decades. Since we're really only starting to see more transparency in this industry, her insights shed light on recent history to give more context to all of these conversations. Are we, are we wearing the right headphones? I think so. Okay. Does it sound okay to you? It sounds fine. I just don't know. Are we even doing this right? That's how I've been feeling this whole time. It's like a good way to start this conversation, maybe. <laughs> yeah, a good metaphor for running a gallery. You opened your space in Bushwick two mm -hmm. years ago so that you could continue working with artists who are emerging, mid-career, established. It's not very common that galleries do that. How do you convert your established collectors to collect the emerging artist's work? That's a good question. I think that there are certain collectors that will go there with you and they really watch what you're doing. In a certain way, I call them an old-fashioned collector because they are so engaged. Finding that person now is harder and harder. People are just working too much. I, I do believe that there has been, in many cities around the country, a collector class that didn't have seven houses all over the world, and they weren't running to 12 art fairs and three biennials. On the other hand, I could send an email to somebody that I've been working with for the last 10 years, and they don't have to see the show. They know that I'm not going to show something that is not well-produced or well-crafted, that I'm not going to work with anybody that I haven't been looking at for some time. They can trust that I have tested my ability to work with that person specifically through usually a group exhibition format or even an art for small art fair format. They trust me, in essence. I also think that with emerging artists in showing them, you have opportunities to reach new audiences that you've never worked with. The fair is key to making that introduction. Right now, we do not have large groups of collectors coming through our neighborhood. I kind of wonder, the galleries that are perhaps moving, whether or not they already have these other sort of modes of delivery, let's call it, where they are already reaching people without those people having to physically see work. 
because I think oftentimes they just don't. You know, I think that there's a lot of reliance on a PDF. If I may speak to the, the quick question about emerging art, I really wanted to be in a place where artists were in terms of where we move the gallery. The advantage of having the lower rent is I can continue to show what I believe in. You make choices as a gallerist as your career continues, and I think there are a lot of people that have had really impressive and very long careers, but they may be showing things that are really different than what they started with. And I'm all for the development of you know one's tastes as a gallerist. I worked in finance in another life, so I'm not interested in just the really basic financialization. I'm not interested in selling products. Artists are not factories. I really want to have a thoughtful engagement with the artist because I learn so much from them. They offer so much. And I feel as though it is a privilege to be able to create a platform where that can happen with a wider group of people. That's what I like to think a dealer is, but it's almost like a romantic notion. Actually, maybe I want to backtrack I'm disagreeing with myself already. I do that all the time. Yeah. It's a bad idea to give me a podcast. (laughs) No, no, no. I, I think that there's a part of it that is not quite foolish, but it's very, very hopeful. We think of it as being incredibly hopeful now. I mean, I guess what strikes me is when I began my commercial career in the recession, Nobody really questioned that there would be some form of recovery and that, you know, it would be business as usual. Now, we are in a very different, I think, financial scape. When I say we, I also mean the artists, too. I mean, the cost of studios in New York City and all around New York is just completely prohibitive. And it's not that you necessarily need to be here, but as anybody that studies the sociology and the economics of the the art systems will tell you, you're going to have an easier time making a living if you can at least show steadily and sell steadily through one of the centers. You know, I do talk about the fact that I don't believe that artists are factories, but it's a very purposeful disavowal because I do believe that there are commercial galleries that would love for the artist to be a factory. And I believe that a lot of what we are seeing at auction and in very unfair floors resembles to me, because in another life I was a designer, so believe me when I say this, I don't hate designers, but it resembles the sort of mechanics of design. It's sort of like, this is in high demand. We know how to make it. We know how to make it seamlessly. Make it and get enough to me before I go to Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. And I think that I will call them now the client for that work. The new collector may not have any problem with that because I don't think that they have any exposure to an idea of practice. I think that they are very object-oriented. I don't know if I can necessarily fault them for that because the way in which they are encountering the work sometimes for the first time are in flat digital images that they're scanning through Instagram. They're not walking into spaces and feeling what is happening in the room when they're seeing or sensing or standing alongside something. That mode of apprehending something has a much greater impact than people realize. A point worth going back to is the art fair not being the source of evil Mm -hmm. as well, because what you're describing is people having an opportunity to see work in physical space. Mm -hmm. That's something that the art fair 
does offer. One of my favorite aspects of an art fair actually is when I get to learn about galleries that are in other places and I get to see my friends from all over the world. I think it's insanely privileged that we get to attend these art fairs in the first place. There are so many different qualities to different fairs. Certain fairs are extremely gallery driven. And I would say that other fairs are very, very collector-driven. How could it be structured differently to have it be like a more productive space? Because there's like a lot of potential. I don't feel like the art fairs adjusted quickly enough to thinking a little bit longer term about who their client will be in 10 years. As I said, there's a lot of galleries that are closing or have closed where maybe they aren't the future client. The art fair, like the gallery, is competing for the attention of the collector. The attention is fleeting. I have no interest in vilifying fairs. I just don't understand how the large fairs don't seem to support what will become their future gallery client. I genuinely don't understand. I keep mentioning that it, I might have the equation completely wrong. Violeta Mancisha founded UVE in Buenos Aires in 2015. It's a gallery, but it's also an art project that's constantly evolving. The program focuses on performance and video, events and experiences, and it's a house and residency program where many of the represented artists have live work spaces. In all of these ways, it's a community gathering space where many contribute to a common goal of fostering creativity, experiments, fun, and family. Since its founding, Violetta has organized or helped to facilitate hundreds of events, exhibitions, performances, parties, and workshops. And she's extensively collaborated with galleries, institutions, and venues throughout Latin America, Europe, and the U.S. I was a curator in residence at UVE in September 2018, where I organized a solo show with Basica TV, another with Ed Fornilis, and later one with Caleb Lindsay. Violetta and I met earlier that year at Nada New York, where she was exhibiting Basica, and I was organizing a solo show with Emilio Bianchi at Postmasters. He's one of the three members of Basica, with Lulo DeMarco and Guzman Paz. There was something about working with all of them which I had never so genuinely experienced. We helped each other without question and took our work seriously, but never too seriously. It's art, and it should be about living and creating things together. It's why I didn't hesitate when Violeta and Basica invited me to Argentina, and it's why I never wanted to leave. Violeta has had success in these past five years, placing works in institutions abroad and showing at international art fairs. Among the challenges she faces, though, is an existential one, how to maintain the joyful community experience of Uve while the space grows up, so to speak. It's an especially difficult question considering her location, Collectors in Argentina are extremely supportive, but in order for these galleries to survive, they must engage internationally, too. Scaling up is a necessity to compete on a global scale. However, even if her artists have shown at major institutions throughout Latin America and are in significant collections, their work is often unfamiliar to audiences outside of a more immediate context. The prices can therefore seem unjustified, even though they're not. Furthermore, galleries from the so-called periphery are always doing double the work, if not more. International audiences may expect a justification for these practices, meaning historical and cultural contextualization is always required. All of their texts have to be written in several languages. The process of translation is far more than linguistic. It's cultural, as global audiences have to grasp the relevance of an unknown practice at a rapid pace within an art fair booth. So... 
Do you want to tell me about UV again? <laughs> yes, UV is crazy project. I started five years ago. I started this project with Lolo Lauti first. There are uh, artists who work together, Lautaro and Lorenzo. Then we invite to Basica TV, a collective artist from Uruguay, to make a resident at UV because UV is a house with a lot of rooms. The living room now is our gallery, but in the first was a place to proof and make experiment with video or, or sculpture or the body of, yes, like more performance space. Then invite other friends to make craziness, like not only exhibition, maybe parties or experiment or more like events or experience. The idea I have, it's not idea, it's more a necessity because I need a house and make experiment and invite other artists to live to Buenos Aires. So in the first was more a dream. You have these live work spaces, also several gallery spaces actually within UV. There's the main gallery space, the dark room, where you invite established artists to show their work. That's different than what is typically done in galleries, what the dark room is equivalent to. They're using that to bring emerging artists into their galleries alongside their established artists. And you're like flipping that. It's the inverse at UV. All of these things together, like the performances, the events, the changing up the model. Was there anywhere like this that was sort of an inspiration to you? Or you said it was a necessity to have this space. Was that because there was nothing like it? Uh, I don't know other projects similar to UV here in Buenos Aires because here is more regular galleries. Now there are a new, more like UV space, for example, Constitución, because it's a house and there are the leaf or piedras, other gallery, but it's more Constitution like gallery. And UV have a part of gallery, but the more important is work together and the production. I have a problem with the UV because we have five years, all the people say, well, you're a gallery, and blah, 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 and you need blah, blah, blah. And I say, well, yes, we're a gallery, but it's more like gallery. So I need to grow up, but you know the regular form. I need to make our way. I don't know how you say in English. No, I understand. I guess my question okay. would be then, like, do you think that that, is something that can continue or what are you feeling right now when you're coming up on like five years of doing this? Now I recognize I don't like be a gallery. I more feel like producer or management partner than the artist. But I have a role like gallery. So maybe UV needs a part of gallery because it's necessary to sell art, to survive, to, but I have other sides necessary to make experimental projects. Yeah, because these kinds of works that you're selling, they're still really difficult to sell. Like even the piece that you had at Arteba this past year, it was a performance piece and you had some videos in the side room, but it was a performance piece that took up the majority of your stand and it was there for every day of the fair. I don't know any other gallery that has done something like that. 
it's a crazy idea, but also when I decide to go in with a performance to the art fair, it's the moment to show for the non-local community, maybe the international art community, to say, hi, we make performance. Two years ago, we show a full TV interaction by Basica TV, and the people say, you are so crazy because it's impossible to sell video. And I say, well, I make video, so I need to sell video. And they start to sell video, not only UV, maybe other gallery start to work with show video in their fair. The collaborative aspect of UV and the community, uh, I lived there and I felt like whenever I had a question or if I needed something translated or if I needed a book to read or I needed just like emotional support, it was <laughs> always there. Even in the times that we're like joking around and just having food or going to a party, like that's when some of the best ideas would happen. Just felt very alive. We live together and work together and all the time helps us more like a new kind of family. Is there anything else you want to say about Uve? Oh, I think... It's good, no? No, está bien. Está bien. Alyssa Davis is the founder and director of her eponymous space in the West Village, which she opened in November 2016. I remember when I first received an email from Alyssa's gallery address. By then, it was her second show with Ed Fernelis, and it sort of mysteriously appeared in my inbox. Ed's show was open-ended. On her gallery's website, the closing dates still read as question marks, but also, I had known Alyssa for years and didn't know she had opened a gallery. I used to spend a lot of time at Alyssa's apartment when I was hanging out with Manny and Moises of Art 404, and that's how I met Alyssa. We would meet up after work, and I don't even know what we would do. Program, make things in Photoshop to submit to jogging, look at websites projected on their big white walls with the Manhattan skyline seen through giant, gorgeous windows that have now become iconic in Alyssa's gallery space. The space has had a number of lives. After our initial meeting, Alyssa and Moises opened it as an event space where, for example, Mike Pepe held some of his cloud-based institutional critique reading groups, one of which I hosted. And now it's a gallery that champions emerging artists from around the world. For many, it's been their first opportunity to have a solo show. With so many small galleries closing, we're losing spaces for emerging artists to show their work. This is a compound problem, too. If an artist is unable to get a show... How can they get a review, since that's what most magazines want? How do they build the value that the art world wants them to have? So I wanted to talk to Alyssa about her program and the opportunities that she's been able to create for artists. There's also a strong community aspect to her gallery that comes from its earlier days as an event space. She continues to host events, but also dinners and gatherings that are about bringing people together. I met Manny at the Met, and I met Moises, and then I met you, and then you guys started an event space. Yes, it was called IRL Institute for a few months, maybe. I don't know if it even had that official title. We were running it kind of as a ad hoc event space. We would produce shows there sometimes, or host book clubs, as you know. You hosted Mike Pepe's book club, the cloud-based institutional critique. Mm-hmm. I ran one of the reading groups about cyborgs and how problematic that word is. Mm -hmm. How did you go from an art student mm -hmm. to starting this event space? It happened pretty naturally. I mean, I'd been living there the whole time I was in school, so it was definitely more of a 
kind of family apartment living with Moises and Manny and my sister was there. It was kind of easy to open up the space to friends when someone had a proposal, but it wasn't under an official title and nothing was documented, on my end at least. I think I'd hosted Victor Barragan's fashion presentation fall winter 2016. He had blacked out all the windows. I mean, you know the space, there are like 20-something windows in the main gallery area. So he had put garbage bags over everything and made kind of a fake club. And there were maybe 300 people in there over an hour and a half, something like that. That was the last event I had before kind of starting the space officially and saying like, oh, I should have a name on this. Did you have an idea of like what you wanted the programming to look like? As I started hanging out with artists who were out of school and kind of starting a lot of their own projects, I saw how much of a difficulty it was to get space sometimes in New York. So you see all of these artist-run initiatives. Do you know sinkhole projects in Mm -hmm. Baltimore? Uh, They say it's like a Pinterest board on a fence. So, you know, something where you don't have to have much overhead or a physical space, just a camera and some type of vision for the work. As I started seeing more and more artist-run spaces too, like in Brooklyn or Queens, I realized that I should be using the venue that I have access to or apartment that can be turned into a venue for more official shows. And I really tried meeting people in a lot of different groups and then collaborating directly with a curator or a collective that doesn't have access to a physical space. I definitely try to run a tight ship. I really try to automate what I can in terms of just using simple scripts to reformatting photos, kind of boring things, but I'm assuming at a mid-level gallery, a person would be doing that for a whole day to get it prepared to go online. Right, Um, I guess we should say you're an engineer, right? Yeah, I have an engineering (laughs) background, so I try to bring that in when it is appropriate. I don't necessarily have to be convinced by just someone using VR or just using Magic Leap or something as an indicator of new technology or something like that. I also have been working with artists directly to put the shows together and documenting everything myself. Oh, actually, a friend taught me how to take (laughs) the photos a couple months ago, so that's been an improvement. What I've realized, learning how to do the shots myself, each time you're shooting a show, you're reframing it for another audience. Maybe there's an overlap of people who actually attend, but it creates more flexibility with, you know, if you want to make some changes or if you want to shoot something at night that is recorded over a long period of time, or if you want to have dusk or dawn shots, then it's possible to do that there. And the artist can kind of have more input into where they're putting pieces based on that light changing and all of these factors that wouldn't really be possible in a white cube setting. And especially with so many windows, you know, it's pretty difficult to shoot in there, actually. So I try to bring that same kind of sinkhole projects or like pretty days, they also have a similar approach of ad hoc pop-up shooting, but within that space, achieving the straightforward gallery shots first so that I can reach some standard and then be able to experiment a little bit more after that. But even from the first show with Emma, we had night shots and day shots on the website and videos also for Victor's show and Ed's show. 
that maybe otherwise wouldn't be able to have that maintenance too of checking the server all the time, making sure everything's up to date. So sometimes there's a little bit more work or maintenance. Or right now for the group show that's up, we have a projection in the bathroom, but it's a functioning bathroom. So I have to kind of take it down and put it back up when someone's coming because my roommate is using it all the time. It's like a functional bathroom of an apartment where people live. Yeah. On the reality that people aren't going to openings as much, I hope that what I can offer is something that feels like an alternative. Of course, it's a opening with work of artists who people see downtown, but also trying to expand to different audiences and bringing in different projects. There's kind of less pressure to have this strict six to nine schedule. Sometimes people hang out longer or we have closings with music and performance and it's a lot more kind of chaotic. Did you come to the clam bake dinner that we had? No, what show was that for? It wasn't for a show, it was for St. Patty's Day. We made really basic uh, clams and white wine sauce and had big hunks of bread and had a violin player. But it was just, I think 30 people were allowed to come. I like having alternative events that where we can still kind of do it efficiently, not be having an elaborate dinner, but hosting small events that are a reflection of how the space is run. You know, I have this interest in tech or coding that I wouldn't say I abandoned it, but it was a lot of what I was doing before I started the space. So I'd like to merge those two worlds, at least in terms of audience, because I think a lot of the work that's shown would be interesting to kind of like a young tech person. The elusive tech yeah. collector. Like where Manny, where are you? Artists are predictors or like canaries of things to come, whether or not they intend to be that. It's just a different lens. I've been very slowly developing this kind of power mapping. It's basically a data set that could be fed into a number of different visualizers, but it'd be a kind of a predictive tool for both artists and people interested in kind of the downtown or emerging art scene where they're not exactly sure of where to start. I shouldn't say downtown, but Brooklyn, Queens, right, Bronx. And you're working on another project, Crucible? Yes, Crucible is running parallel with the gallery, but it's not related to the space directly. So Crucible is a collective of fabricators who are able to work with emerging artists in order to create a physical object that wouldn't be able to exist without both parties being involved. For example, right now we're working on something with Genevieve Goffman. She designed some 3D models that can be viewed just on a 3D app on your phone. Yeah, I have them on my phone, but they're also being viewed by fabricators who are in Kumasi in West Africa right now. So they can see the files and then they build them based off of the 3D model. So no physical 3D model, just a digital 3D model. And it will be all beeswax with lost wax casting. So yeah, it's a little bit of mashup or infiltration of the art fabrication system, if there is an official one. <laughs> if it needs to be disrupted. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe just some fun added to it. A lot of the social or political questions are embedded within the project, so everyone's experiencing something that they can talk about directly and not abstractly. But yeah, the next step for Crucible is to invite fabricators to apply. There's actually a link on our website for fabricators to apply. It's for people working in rare craft 
who are sort of off-grid. What's the URL? www.crucible.nyc. Yeah. Go type it in and click. I organized this podcast to learn from these dealers and highlight just some of the innovative alternatives I see happening in galleries at the moment. The gallery model is not in crisis, per se. Rather, it's outdated and elitist and needs to be reworked. These people are thinking through how to do that. Even though many mid-sized to smaller galleries are struggling and closing, which is a problem and where the idea of crisis comes from, to continue using this terminology can be damaging. On a basic economic level, why would someone want to collect from businesses that are generally predicted to fail? More importantly, though, we need to reorient our mindset to think positively beyond the pre-existing model, to advocate for meaningful art practices that challenge culture rather than go along with it. I also wanted to highlight these voices because dealers are so often vilified. I see the role of the gallerist as someone who supports and cultivates artistic practices, which is vital. Yes, there are those dealers who give a bad name to all. My perspective about galleries and dealers totally shifted after directing spaces. Prior to this, though I was in the art world, it wasn't always clear what exactly a gallery did. It's easy to think of galleries as the slimy market side of things, but artists and museums can be just as complicit. We go to galleries, write about their shows, and are friends with the artists they represent. Gallerists do so much to give us space to see and think, and yet their day-to-day realities and challenges are either not clear or appreciated. Museum curators go to galleries to find what to collect. The work dealers do is foundational to our institutions. I want to support the spaces and practices I believe in to have a hand in shaping the history of the future. Dealers aren't the problem. Galleries aren't the problem. Art fairs aren't even the problem. Rather, the problems associated with them are symptomatic of the lack of funding for the arts and wealth inequality. How can we support practices in a way that isn't contingent on the 1%, on billionaires who have their money from corrupt or lethal business practices? My biggest takeaway from these discussions is that we need to work collaboratively to build community so that we can help each other get benefits, form unions, who knows. The possibilities are immense because there are more of us than them and we've been scraping by with not a lot for a long time. I hope these conversations can be part of the larger conversation that's forming about how we urgently need to do things differently. Thank you to Amanda Schmidt for inviting me to organize this episode, to all of the participants who were so generous with their time and ideas, and to Kickstarter for granting me access to their recording studio for some of the conversations. Also, thanks to Justin Asher and Mnemonic Recordings for helping to edit the audio. It's a painstaking, time-consuming process that I have so much more respect for after this episode. And of course, huge thanks to Jeff Lawson, founder of the Untitled Art Fair. Special thanks to Amanda and Jeff for being so open-minded to giving these ideas a platform and supporting my research. Finally, thanks to so many of my friends who have helped contribute to my thinking around these ideas. Finally, a huge thanks to the composer of the original soundtrack you heard at the beginning and end of this episode by Celia Hollander from the score for Madeline Hollander's performance Mile, originally performed at Untitled in 2015. Since we launched this podcast just over a year ago in October 2018, we've grown an incredible and supportive fan base. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the Untitled Art Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, 
Google Play, or wherever you may get your podcasts. To end today's episode, I leave you with a quote from John Cage. Wherever we are, what we hear is mostly noise. When we ignore it, it disturbs us. When we listen to it, we find it fascinating. So I'd like to invite you to keep on listening and think of listening as another way of looking. Keep tuning in this year as Untitled Art will be releasing new episodes every month and also debuting new guest hosts. Signing off, I'm your host of season one, Amanda Schmidt, and I hope you'll continue to listen to the Untitled Art Podcast. Thank you.